So this evening, I would like to, to start by talking about mudita, this, uh, what we've been practicing today. And I think it's a very important uh, quality to cultivate for many different reasons. And so first I'd like to, to look at the fact that in a way we can see how We can see that when the, the Buddha decided to use, to develop over time, I presume, the Brahma Vihara, those uh, qualities of loving kindness, of compassion, of joy, of equanimity, is that it seems to me, in a way, he was an astute uh, observer of human nature maybe his own human nature, other people's human nature. And that's why when we read the text, what I found as I look at the text and what he points out, is that of course sometimes you have these very complicated discourses. But one of the, the suttas which personally I like to read is from the numerical discourse. And Bhikkhu Bodhi, of course, recently all the numerical discourses have been translated by Bigu Bodhi. This is like a, a work of love. It's maybe, I don't know, a thousand suttas, tiny one, but a lot of them. And so what he did first was actually to, to you, could say, you could say he did first the best of the numerical discourses. And so basically, that's what I have really looked at and read several times because I found it really uh, inspiring. And Stephen actually is finding a lot of things in the big one. He is now reading, I think, the big one. <laughs> I have not dared to look at it yet. <laughs> but in the, in the short version, there is, it's very interesting to see the Buddha is actually quite pragmatic, practical, looking at quite, you know, ordinary things, you know, what stupid things people do, what wise things people do, what helps with what. So really kind of like nothing metaphysical, but really one sees a great observer of human nature and also I think very creative. And I think the four qualities, as he saw them as, you know, an antidote to fear, to resentment, <coughs> To, to kind of jealousy and different things like that. So he, he, he was seeing, you know, yes, there seems to be this difficulty which create pains, and then possibly this could help with that. So he kind of observing the effect of cultivating different quality. And I think with Mudita, what we, we see is that he feels that actually joy is an important quality to experience. Actually, pleasant feeling tone is an important quality to experience. So I think one thing about mudita is actually for us to see that, yeah, if we feel pleasant feeling tone without grasping at them, but in a way enjoying them, enjoying them especially knowing they're not going to last, 
then what it helps us to see is that I am not always in a painful state. But I can experience myself as happy, peaceful, kind, or whatever. And so, to me, what he's trying to tell us is that we can experience ourselves in many different ways. And that actually feeling joyful, happy, peaceful is actually beneficial for us. So not to see that the meditation first is to make us unfeeling or that we should not enjoy ourselves. Often there is this idea that you should not enjoy yourself. And of course, it's true that in different traditions, they have different relationships with what I would call being with pleasant feeling tone, of being in life. I mean, I do agree that there are different, you know, in certain traditions, they sow into suffering, that, you know, you must look at suffering, and you feel, oh, yes, that's, that's the main thing is suffering. I mean, recently somebody was interviewing me, and she asked me different questions about meditation and things, and then she looked really puzzled, really puzzled. And I said, well, I just you know, say what I generally say. And she said, but don't you feel lots of emotional stuff? I said, no. You know, I mean, I practiced in Korea for 10 years. I practice now. And to me, meditation doesn't equate experiencing lots of emotional stuff necessarily. But in that tradition, I was, she has interviewed many different teachers from one tradition and somebody from another, and she said that's the first time somebody did not equate meditation with lots of what I, it looked like painful emotion. And I said, well, possibly, I don't know, that's what they experience or that's where their focus is on, but that's not what I experienced. So I think it's not saying that they are wrong, but I think it's to see how generally we meet a certain tradition and they generally will have a little focus. This is about this, this is about that. And because nowadays we can meet so many different things, we can actually see, oh yeah, this focus now could be useful for me. But maybe now I need to be focused on that. And so in terms of Korea, because as Stephen mentioned, there was this kind of like cultural, you could say, vibes of Taoism, of being with nature and, and things like that, then there was really there a great appreciation of beauty in a way. But beauty in a kind of like simple way. You know how you know in Chinese painting, you have lots of space and then a huge little thing. So it was really about that, not about this kind of look, all this. But you know, they would... They, they had an appreciation of beauty, of joy. And so, for example, in Korea, once a year, and if you want to see it in situ, there is actually on the internet a documentary film of nuns, Korean nuns, three months retreat of Korean nuns. And it's wonderful. And because it was the three months of the, of the winter retreat, they doing, so you see, you see them and they're really serious, meditating, ta-ta-ta-ta. Then every two weeks they have the early morning, late evening, they meditate. In the daytime they go for a walk. 
And what they do in Korea when they go for a walk, monks or nuns, is that they go into singing poem, kind of sort of ululating singing poem. And you know, they tell you what's beautiful about whatever. You know, and I've seen it many times, it's beautiful. And they have these beautiful voices. So you see the nuns doing a bit of that. And then they have the New Year, Lunar New Year. And in that one, they show <laughs> the nuns who are visited by the monks and they play the New Year game, which is called Yut. And actually there is like, you know, sometimes the monk beats them, sometimes they beat the monk. And, you know, that's what they do in the middle of the retreat at some point. And so they do that for two, three hours. And then they go back to their meditation 10 hours a day. So there is that understanding of life as it happens. So sometimes you're very serious and you do the meditation, you do the schedule, and sometimes you go for a walk, and sometimes once a year you play this game, this huge game. <laughs> so to me that was my experience uh, in Korea to see that this affair, this Dharma affair, is not a doom and gloom thing. But part of it is that joy, that lightness. And I think this is important for us to feel that lightness, that we're not always feeling the same thing. And when we feel joyful and light, then just, in a way, to enjoy it. Oh, that's how it feels when I am well. And then when you are unwell, for whatever reason, then you know, I am not always like this. But sometimes I am well, uplifted, and sometimes it's a little difficult, a little heavy. So I think that's the first thing about joy, to just acknowledge that part of our life, to really experience it. And then there is this two aspect, which is like, that's why I translated in two different ways, appreciative joy, which is really about appreciating, learning to appreciate what we have. Because I think in a way often we have the feeling something is missing. And then we easily go into this comparing. They have more than me. And this is so painful, so painful when we go into this they have more than me. I will never have that. And what personally I have learned is that what we see of people is only the external. We never know how they feel. So one part of their life might be great, but it doesn't mean that everything in it is great. And often I would ask people, but although they have this and that that you would like to have, do you want to be them? And I would say, generally, we don't want to be somebody else because we don't know how they really are. You know, we have the impression that they're really fantastic, but we don't totally know. And in a way, we can also creatively engage with ourselves. So once I had a friend for a month, she decided to do mudita for a whole month. That's what she was, she's a meditation teacher. And she was going to do mudita meditation, rejoicing meditation, appreciating meditation. 
And she said at the beginning of the month, there was a lot of things that she thought she was missing. And she was a little kind of, you know, in a slightly low mood. And she said by the end of the month, she was like, <laughs> not only a little cloud, but nearly like so appreciative, so aware, inexperienced of everything she could appreciate, at the same time being aware of suffering, of course. But that all life was not just suffering, that there was also things we could enjoy. So then you have the different phrases, which are not traditional. And so you might wonder, but why is she using these phrases? And some of them are a little more challenging than others. And I thought, because I said, yes, yeah, sure, you can do the traditional, may your good fortune continue, may this, may that. And I thought, yeah, you can do that. But to me, I think, you know, the practice is really about putting together concentration and inquiry. And so why I choose the two phrases, the phrases the way I did was because of that, so that you can cultivate together both. And so you have the first one. I appreciate my effort. And I think a lot of the time, we don't appreciate our effort. As I said before, why? Don't generally we think, I did not try hard enough. Or we think in the past, if only I had tried harder then. But personally, I would say, at that time, with what you knew, you did the best you could. Possibly now you would do something different, but now you are in really different conditions. So in a way, you cannot judge the past with now. And so I think, to me, this is something to really appreciate within ourselves, that most of the time, we really do the best you can, considering the circumstances we find ourselves in that our efforts are not unconditioned. They're conditioned by our energy, by our condition, by di many different things. And so, in a way, it's back to what I was saying the other day. If you think of effort, not as a fact that you try something with generally a good intention, but generally we look at effort as the result, the effect. And that is always mysterious, because sometimes you can try something and it's very hard for it to work the way you want it. But it doesn't mean you did not try hard enough. Sometimes the condition are so, and then you have to find, how can I be in this situation? How can I creatively engage with something which seems a little difficult? I had a friend like this. She had such good ideas, and I thought, yeah, that's a great idea. And then she would go and try to do it, and then the, it did not work. She, she could not find all the conditions propitious for this to happen. And then she went back to, what is it I can do within the, con the condition I find myself in? Because it seemed that in these circumstances, I cannot change those. But I could, with what is around me, still make a life for myself. So I appreciate my effort. And I think this is so important to actually appreciate our efforts. And then 
I appreciate your efforts. And that, I think, is really also extremely important. Because often, we have this uh, strange standard that if I can do it, everybody can do it. But in the same way that some people can do things you cannot, other people, because of their condition, cannot do things you can. And so often we think, well, if I was them, I mean, I would not do it this way, or I would have done it this way, or they don't try hard enough. I mean, I think generally people try as hard as they can. I mean, I follow somebody on Twitter and to do with um, mental health. And she became, in a way, famous on Twitter uh, a few years ago, I think, because she put the 10 things not to say to a depressed person. And they're so right on. And one of them is, you are not trying hard enough, or something of that nature. So, and, and, and if, you, if you read the 10, a lot of it is that. She's telling you, please appreciate their effort. Appreciate the condition, and they're trying the best they can, but their best might be like that, when you think your best is like that. So I think it's really to see, although even if somebody doesn't seem to make any effort, they might actually do just the effort of being alive, of living day to day with whatever condition they find themselves in. And so I think we have to, to me this is really, uh, actually really one of the most compassionate things we can do, to really appreciate people's effort. And also to see that they might not be able to do this now, but it doesn't mean that later they will not be able to do it, or they will not be able to use it. And that's back to that impermanence, not to, not to fix people or ourselves. I will always be like this. You will always be like that. And uh, I mean, that's what happened with, uh, I was very moved by my nephew who was, when he was young, he had lots, quite a lot of difficulty emotionally, and uh, once he was staying at home with my mother and grandmother, and I was there as a nun passing by, or possibly it was after I was a nun, yeah. It was, I was coming on holiday, possibly. And so he was there, this young man, a little lost, and I was there, a teacher of meditation, and I thought, what can I do? Well, I could teach him a little bit of meditation, why not? So we just spent maybe 10 minutes. And I just you know, said, you know, if you feel a little kind of anxious, a little agitated, you, know, you could try to do the breath time to time. He did not really look convinced. I don't know if he ever did it or anything. But then many years later, at one of these family gatherings, he said, you know, maybe it was 10 years later. He said, recently I had some difficulty at work. And I remembered your instruction on the breath. And that's what I did. And I found it so helpful. And then he moved, and then he had another job. 
and it was getting a little difficult. And then it, what I found interesting with him is that he realized what is most important, working too hard, getting stressed, or working less and having a good relationship with my girlfriend. And he said, no, 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 I need to have a good relationship with my girlfriend. That's first, and then the work. And so what I found with him is that he might have a kind of difficult emotions, but then he kind of think about it, and then, okay, I will try that. But he will do it in his time. So I think this is, I appreciate your efforts. The same with children. You know, you might have children who are really bright, my niece, I have a grand niece who is very bright. And I mean, the teachers are all in love with her and everything, you know. But her mother said, well, you should see her room. <laughs> so she's very bright, but it's very easy. But it seems to be much harder to clean her room and think of that nature. So, you know, in one places we might have little effort, in some other more. So I think at different time, each of us, we will be able to put different effort. So I appreciate my and your effort. Then the next one, I rejoice in your success. And so I know success can be a little of a trigger word, success, Ooh. especially in terms of spiritual, you know, if we do spirituality, meditation, we are above success. What do I mean by success? I mean, of course, it could be to be, I don't know, a pop star, or you could be, I don't know, a famous writer or a noble or something. But I think success is actually, you could say, being good at something, in whatever it might be. Being good at gardening, being good at creating, being good at listening to people. I mean, there is many things in a way we can be successful at. And so to me, this is also about recognizing what is our strength. Can I rejoice in my strength instead of saying, oh, no, 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 this is nothing. Often this is, you know, somebody said, oh, you did this, it's fantastic. You say, no, 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 no. You know, when I was a teacher at the beginning, that would happen. People say, oh, great talk, thank you, thank you. They would say, no, 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 I don't know anything. And then I thought, what am I doing? I mean, they're giving something to me, and I'm saying no. And that became a practice to say, oh, yes, thank you for your appreciation. So can we rejoice in our success? Is kind of saying, can I rejoice and knowledge, experience my strength, my good quality, what I can achieve? And of course, from a meditation point of view, you can also say, I rejoice in my understanding. So then we can rejoice in our progress on the path or in our inside understanding, thing of that nature. And then I think it's very important because often you think the great teacher or the ancient Buddha or the Zen master, yeah, there had the amazing whatnot. But it's kind of seeing they're all human beings. They all had their moments. And generally, they appear to us as this amazing thing, lots because of a geography. You know, the further away they are, the more fantastic they are, you know? I think if we leave them every day, possibly not. You know, they might have been little things. And so, 
in a way to see that. What is our strength? What is our quality? And not compared to some imaginary quality, but what we can experience with ourselves. I think that's really important. And then there is, I rejoice in your success. And that's generally, we're not so sure about that. And why is that? This is interesting. Why is that? Because often we have the strange impression that if they're successful, if they have that much love or that much money or that much success or that much I don't know what, then they're taking away some of what you could have or know at some point. So if that person has that much and that one has that much, I mean, then I'm only left this teeny bit. But actually, success is never-ending. It's not because somebody has a bit of it that you cannot have another bit of it. At the moment, you I mean, when I uh, had a book published, I have several books published, and then, you know, the internet happened, and then Google happened, and then we, when we first got our first Amstrad, what did we do? The first thing, Stephen, myself, his brother, checked our Google number. So Stephen was the most, then I think I was equal with his bros. You know, how many, I don't know how much it was then, not many, like 100 or 200 mentioned. And so it's interesting, you're kind of like, ooh, that's the first thing you do. Same with the books. You go and see, ooh, am I in the, like, you know, close to the bestseller, or am I, like, you know, one million? I mean, if you have one million, it's like maybe your book sells, you know, once a year. You know, if you are in the 50, your book sells, I don't know, 10, 10 a day, I don't know about these things. And at the moment, you have these uh, self-publishing people who are getting really, kind of, very quickly, they're doing very well on the internet, especially with science fiction, for example. And so, in a way, it's very interesting because you have these people who have got big advances, very famous, and then here come these little people nobody knows. It took. So, in a way, they have success overnight. And in a way, here, what is interesting is that when you see the big name in the publisher, you think, oh, I can never do that. I can never be this guy or that guy, and they have million advance and things like that. But when you see the self-publishing on the internet, you think, oh, maybe I can do this. And it's interesting, that success, in a way, seems to be, they took the spot, I am not going to go there. When this one said, oh, they did it, I can do it too. So it's interesting, I rejoice in your success. First, I mean, I think if you rejoice in other people's success, you are more happy anyway. Not only you have your happiness, but you have their happiness too. So I mean, you kind of, you know, get double. But then also to see what we do, especially with our family or friends, very strange phenomenon. They come with a good news. Oh, look, this happened to me. And within 10 minutes, you deflate them. And they're like, oh, and you say, what about this? What about that, you know? And once I did this to a friend, and she said, why are you doing this? And I thought, this is true. Why am I deflating her happiness? Why? I mean, she is happy now. We don't know what the future holds. Why? And since then, I have not done it. Because if somebody is happy, yes. 
Of course, there might be obstacle in a way, or this or that might happen, but I don't know. So why not rejoice right now with them? And I think it's really something to look at. And then, I am grateful for your existence. I know this can be a little controversial, uh, and so that's why I say sometimes potential. Though I saw, after I gave this talk about you know, being grateful for your potential, somebody in Australia sent me this kit about potential, which is extremely funny, by an Australian comedy guy, but still I'll use it. You can find it, possibly, it's really funny what he says about potential. Extremely funny, but I can't remember it. <laughs> so, you see, why grateful? Of course, we don't know why we born. I mean, you could have lots of reason, lots of theology, lots of theory, but the fact is we are born. And of course, we have things which are more easy, things which are more difficult. But I think it's about, in a way, honoring the fact that we're born. These being, after million years of evolution, the million years of evolution ended up in you. This is amazing, isn't it? You know, all this, chuk, 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 and then it's you here. And I think, well, why not? You know? And so, in a way, to, to be grateful for that. And I know sometimes it's difficult, but Okay, how can I be with the difficulty? And so to kind of be grateful for our existence, to be grateful for our potential. And our potential is just to see, yeah, you know, I have grown, I have changed, different things can happen. And so to be grateful for that. To me, this was one of the great lessons of living in Korea, in a Confucianist society was such a strong concept of gratitude. And with gratitude, and it was not like you see often you have this idea of gratitude as competition. I give you something, so I'm grateful, but then I, in order to feel better, I have to equalize it. But I think gratitude is just this kind of gratefulness. I'm grateful for your existence. I'm grateful for your potential. And so, of course, I know it's when you get to the difficult people, you're not always grateful for their existence. But I thought, at least you could be grateful for their potential for change. So then you, you, can, you can see which one you choose. And so it's kind of, you know, so I'm not saying you must do these phrases, but to see these phrases as an inspiration to cultivate, but also to reflect. To reflect on our relationship with appreciation of ourselves and others, our re relationship with rejoicing in our happiness and others, and also with gratitude. And to kind of, to me, this is something I cultivate a lot. Being grateful for my conditions, being grateful for many different things. Daily, that's what I do. I think, oh, wow, you know, 
this, that, and another. And I'm grateful for it. That's something I really, for me, it's actually not, I, I don't use the phrases as such, but it's more through the day I am grateful for different things. And I mean, in Korea, it was the same. You know, I would be in the temple going about the day and worrying about this or thinking about that. And then time to time, I would stop and I would think, isn't it amazing to be here? It's amazing to be here. And so to me, the gratitude is a little connected to that astonishment, to that wonderment. And then I wanted uh, to say something about speech, because uh, we've been in silence as a practice, as a training, and then tomorrow we'll break the silence, and then we'll go back to our daily life. And in our daily life, there will be many opportunities for listening, and also many opportunities for speaking. And I think for me, this is a great practice. So of course, here you've not cultivated as such. But actually, I think that by being silent with others, we learn to speak more wisely. We learn to speak more compassionately. And again, to, to bring creative awareness to our speech and to notice what do I say? Like sometimes I speak and it's fine. And sometimes somebody might speak and it's suddenly they say stupid things. I mean, that happens to me. Time to time, if I am in certain situation, I will say something stupid. I mean, recently I did uh, a, few, a few years back, I did this to them. It was very strange. I was really kind of a little stressed about the car and thing and different things. And uh, I had to change the immatriculation, the number, the number plate of the car. And I did not see or realize that I could do it in the garage. So I went to the special place, but then I had to go to the garage, so he put it in. And so I said, oh, I did not see, uh, I did not know uh, that you did it. And then right in front of me, there was an old plate with underneath the address and name of the garage. And the guy was like, I mean, is she really totally stupid, this woman? It's in front of her, and she doesn't see it. And I had not seen it whatsoever. And so I said this total kind of like, and I was wondering, why did he say that to me? And then I noticed, <laughs> yes, indeed. So sometimes you speak because you're stressed and you say anything and you don't know where it comes from. Sometimes you speak and it's so fast that actually it's faster than you can think. And so I think that's why in a way being in silence can really help us because we have this strange mechanism with speaking. Like it's kind of like something take us. It's kind of very strange. And so I think the appropriate speech speak can really help us, awareness. So that's what of the silence to help us to be 
a little less fast in the thinking in a way, so that then when we speak, then it's not that rushedness about it or that self-consciousness about it, but that more it's kind of like this sharing of something. It's really about communication. It's not about throwing words, but more about how do I want to communicate with this person? I mean, it doesn't mean that you have to think for 10 minutes, what am I going to say? But if, if I think we are in a more the communication mode, I'm trying to communicate. Instead of, I have to say as many words as I can in the next minute. And so I wanted to read the definition from the Buddha of appropriate speech. So uh, if you wonder where do I get all these quotes, it's from a book I did called The Spirit of the Buddha. And so there is all these quotes from the sutta, and then I make a commentary. So this is right speech, a bit long, but... He or she does not in full awareness speak falsehood for his own ends or for another hands or for some petty worldly end. Abandoning malicious speech, he abstains from malicious speech. He does not repeat elsewhere what he has heard here in order to divide those people from these, nor does he repeat to these people what he has heard elsewhere in order to divide these people from those. So he or she is one who reunites those who are divided, a promoter of friendship, we enjoy concord, rejoicing concord, etc. Abandoning harsh speech, he abstains from harsh speech. He speaks such words that are gentle, pleasing to hear, and lovable, as go to the heart, are courteous, desired by many, agreeable to many. Abandoning gossip, he abstains from gossip. He speaks at the right time what is factual and good. So, Basically, he's saying first about falsehood, that what you say tries to be relatively true, as true as it can be. I mean, truth is a movable concept, but you try to be as accurate, you could say, as you can be. And also not to try to, to, to lie in order to take advantage or things of that nature. Then he talks of malicious speech. It's, it's kind of like, you know, again, what I was pointing out. If you talk behind people's back and then may trying to kind of, you know, some discord happen, or did you hear this and that people said that. Personally, when somebody asks me, what does that people think of me? I generally remain silent. I generally would say no comment. <laughs> because you never know how it's going to be taken. Things are said in certain contexts. So unless I have to say the information for so helpful purpose, I would be very careful of repeating to somebody, somebody said, somebody said to me, because often you don't remember exactly what they say. And then you interpret it, and then people will react to a word the person never said. So I think it's kind of looking at that. How do we use speech? Do, you, do we use speech to communicate? Or do we use speech to occupy space? Or do we use speech so that we feel we exist? So I think this is 
to me, this is where the Dharma Vichaya with speech come in. How do I use speech? How do I communicate? And then he talks about gossip. So, of course, a little gossip kind of can be useful. I think it's hard never, ever to do it. So sometimes people try to do that. We had a friend who for, I think, a month or three months, she decided I'm not going to gossip, which meant I'm not going to talk about somebody who is not present. And she said, you know, it reduced my speech by 90%. <laughs> so that was very interesting. So, of course, we did a little bit. But I think we need to really be careful. Is it beneficial? Am I saying something which is just, you could say, idle and it's harmless? Or am I saying something which is idle and is not harmless? I think this is a thing about concord. This was some of the things that the Buddha was really harmony, concord. How can you help people to understand each other? How can you help people to see each other, to meet each other? And to me, this is something we often meet in daily life. When if people have difficulty, generally each of them try to get you on their side. And so I'm not saying it's easy to be on both sides, because one of them comes to you and tells you a story, and you think, yeah, 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 yeah. Then the other one tells you the same story, and you think they come from different planets, kind of like. They're describing the same event, but you don't think they were there together at the same time. It's so different. And so you kind of wait a minute, you know? So anyway, how can you listen to somebody, be there for them without colluding? And that, I think, is an art. I'm not saying it's easy. And I think that's why it's practice. It's because it's something we need to cultivate. We need to creatively engage with. We need to, how can I creatively listen? In such a way that, in a way, I don't push the balance one way or another, but the person feels heard. And then, the last one is harsh speech. And that, I think, is fascinating. Because you will say, oh, but I did not say anything. You know, I just said ordinary words. <laughs> but how did you say them? The tone. I think that's very interesting, the tone we say things. Because you see, you ask somebody to help you. And they say, I can't, I have this appointment. And you say, all right, never mind. I mean, you just said, all right, never mind. But possibly you said more than that <laughs> with the tone. So to me, this is how, what's the tone? And can I be taken over by the tone? Because you see, you ask somebody to do something, they can't do it. So of course, one is frustrated. You need some help, and they're not giving it to you as you wanted, of course you're frustrated. So then you have the tone. All right, never mind. I can manage. I always manage. 
you're never there for me. And then, like last year, you did not do this. And really, next year, I mean, how can I count on you if right now, all right, never mind. But I'm not going to forget about it. So you say, <laughs> you say these words, but in a way, to the, what the Buddha is saying, the tone. The tone is not only going to affect the other person. It's going to actually affect you. And so I'm not saying it's easy not to give the tone when you are frustrated. And I, I found some really good word, frustrated, exasperated. You know, you want a solution. But it's, again, how do we relate to the tone? You know, you are exasperated, frustrated. The tone comes in. And do you get taken over? And then psh, it amplifies. It exaggerates. Or do we say, OK, here is the tone. Can I bring it down again? And I think this is a really hard practice. I'm not saying it's easy. And I think that's why it's one of the Eightfold Path. Because the Buddha said, you know, appropriate speech sounds wonderful. But in practice, I think it's a lot of actually, I think it's very important to see as we practice here, we're really developing the power of the creative awareness. So that then in our daily life, we can bring it to speech, to communicating, for example. So that's what I wanted to say. Are there any questions? Or yes? Uh, just to say, I found the appreciated joy really useful. Thanks, Ruth. <coughs> It's very, it's very difficult to say, I take joy in my success. Something very ambitious about it. <laughs> so that's quite useful. Uh, I used it in somebody who I'm in a caring relationship to, supporting caring. <coughs> and to say there as well, um, uh, appreciate your efforts, take joy in your success, gives you another perspective on that person. And then I used it for something, a uh, local figure who it got certain conflict with. So, uh, I say, appreciate your efforts, you know, which is an effort to say, and I take joy in your success. No, I don't. <laughs> and, uh, but working on it gives you another perspective on the person. You know. Yeah, thank you. Exactly. This is the idea. It doesn't mean you're going to love everybody, but it kind of might shift a little the, the, the way one feels, the way one looks. Yes. For somebody's success, um, well, it feels to me that maybe it's got ethical implications or it crosses your values, their success. Um, I suppose I, uh, you know, I, I mean, I've got a lot of work to do in this area, no doubt about it anyway. But, but um, in that particular instance, I, I kind of think, um, how can I be joyous of your success? If it doesn't really fit with my values, although, you know, great for them. 
I think this is why when I talked again the other day, I was trying to point out that we should not take this in a totalizing manner, but that we do it in a wise way. So it doesn't mean that you have re to rejoice in the success of everybody. So for example, I would not rejoice in the success of uh, one of the dictators who is killing lots of his people at the moment. I don't think the fact that he's killing more and more people is great. So I really don't rejoice in it. So I think it's again, it's kind of like within wisdom, within value, the value we have. So in a way we can rejoice in the success of amnesty or the success of Médecins Sans Frontières. But then I think we have to, have to be careful with the barometer. That's why I said people you don't have so much difficulty with. Because then generally we can to some degree, but there is certain thing that people do, then of course we cannot rejoice in that. Like you mean, if, if you have different value to the person? Yeah, I suppose, yes. Yeah, if you feel a sort of a clash going on, you know, and it's affecting things. Well, again, Mike right. if we talk about the success of somebody you're clashing with, then I would, my, the criterion would be what is your value? Like if the person is doing something which is harmless. Like they become, like for example, at the moment, I don't know if some of you are aware, I don't know how you call it in English, but when people lend money to people as really terrible rates, you know, like, I mean, 50% or more, it's crazy. And so there are companies who do this. And so recently, one of the Anglican top persons said, this is not right. So if your person, if your friend was a director of the company, and then I say fair enough to question what he did, but doesn't mean that he is evil, doesn't mean that you have to go and kill them, but if, he, if they are your friend and they are in an area of work which is a little, which is harmful or which is, uh, harmful generally, I would say, then, you know, you can question the person as long as it's not dangerous for you. I think you also have to see that. I mean, once we were on the street, three little ladies, me included, and we see the, we hear the noise and these two guys are beating each other up, two young guys. And we say, stop it. This is not good. And my friends say, yes, you must resolve this peacefully. <laughs> and they were so surprised. <laughs> All right. So they went on their way. <laughs> they are so surprised, these little old ladies telling them that. I mean, they might have gone and beat up each other up somewhere else. I don't know about that. But at least we stopped them there because we thought, this is not on. But we did not know them. Or if it, it's a friend, once we had a friend, was shouting at somebody. And I said, we, three of us 
in a community, three of us stood up and said, this is not art. So I think it depends. Can you do it or not? Can you have a reasonable conversation? Can you question the person in a way which can be more like a dialogue? So I think, you know, yeah, I would not say to rejoice in everybody's success in any circumstances. Thank you. Yeah? achieving their definition of whatever was successful. And we live in a world where there's so much unskillful, damaging behaviour going on and it's not an occasional occurrence, it's, it's ubiquitous. Uh, we meet it in the street every day. I mean, for me, my, I wish people success. I'm, I'm wishing them to be successful in terms of having a wholesome and healthy outcome whatever it is they're doing. And for me, success would be, they might think that success will be for them to, uh, to try and vote somebody else to the other person's detriment. But I might think that success is actually for them to realise that there are happier, healthier ways to live. Yeah, you see. So if I'm wishing them success and they enjoying their success, I'm taking joy in, 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 in thinking to some extent you're always going to be learning something and there's something that can. Yeah, you see, this is why, I, I mean, this is why I'm a little. Uh, challenging here. I could use the word understanding, and then it would be much easier. <laughs> but I use the word success because personally, I would like for us to reflect on what it means, and can we redefine it? Because I think this is part of what something we can do at a very little, our little level. Can we redefine for each other what it means to be successful? what it means for me to be successful. Because that's also interesting. Because we can be influenced by different ideas in the society. So can we redefine it for ourselves? And can, through that, redefine it for others? And so personally, I, I, um, I'm very inspired when I read stories of people where they are successful, but the way they do it is really wholesome. And, and the way they look at success is very, actually has an idea of renunciation in it. And I found that really inspiring. So yeah, I would, uh, I would agree there. And we have to stop here and do some walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.